Good evening. Welcome to the Critical Hour. We're coming to you from the capital of the United States of America, Washington, D.C., here on Radio Sputnik. I'm Garland Nixon here with my co-host, Dr. Wilmer Leon. Thank you, Garland. For the next two hours, we will explore and analyze the salient news stories that are impacting the global village in which we live. The U.S. is streamlining its nuclear weapons deployment in Europe. Also, Finland may be willing to host NATO nuclear weapons, and the Ukrainian leadership is concerned about waning support in the West. Joining us now to discuss this stuff, this stuff you'll notice I said, is Mark Sloboda. He's a Moscow-based international relations security analyst. Mark, welcome back to the Critical Hour. Garland, Dr. Leon, thanks for having me. It's always an honor and a pleasure to be on the Critical Hour. Well, we got stuff to talk about, Mark, and let's start with stuff. Antiwar.com. European allies worry U.S. might reduce support for Ukraine. Ukraine's foreign minister is concerned with recent comments from the Republican leader in the House about Ukraine. The Washington Post reported that the U.S. European allies are concerned that the U.S. may dial back its support for Ukraine if Republicans are victorious in the upcoming midterm elections. Your thoughts, Mark Sloboda? Yeah, I, I think this is uh, much ado by nothing, although it is rather interesting to conceive of the psychology of European leaders who are so worried that the tap uh, the uh, tap uh, of weapons coming from the U.S. taxpayer to Ukraine might in any way slow or be interrupted. Uh, unfortunately, there's no sign of that. Uh, the uh, uh, House uh, currently minority leader, uh, perhaps soon to be majority leader, Kevin McCarthy, only said that the House won't be willing to write a blank check while still making comments uh, that uh, that he was, uh, you know, talking about oversight. He was talking about some uh, um, uh, in making sure that those weapons are actually getting there and not being sucked into the black hole of Kiev corruption, as previous reports have indicated that uh, a substantial amount, if not a majority of U.S. military aid is doing and then showing up on the global uh, uh, black market. But I haven't seen any indication uh, that he would consider lowering it, uh, uh, reducing that amount. And we've actually heard from uh, the uh, Senate Republican leader, um, uh, Mitch McConnell, uh, that, um, you know, that the flow will, if anything, increase. Uh, so I'm not expecting anything there, although it does perhaps tell us about the psychology of the European leaders with all of this hand wringing, how dependent they are for the U.S. Uh, uh, to take the lead and U.S. taxpayers to uh, shoulder the majority of the burden here and their fear that if the U.S. in any way interrupted that flow, that that would lead other European leaders to attempt to uh, uh, lower the amount uh, that they themselves are giving, if not get out of the whole business and watch it collapse to begin with. Uh, that. I, I think shows clearly the dominance of the U.S. in the foreign policy relationship and how much they look to the U.S. Uh, to to lead them. Uh, a complete lack of any foreign policy independence or sovereign. RT reports U.S. to modernize nuclear arsenal in Europe. 
The Pentagon has reportedly accelerated the delivery of more accurate bombs to Europe. They're talking about the delivery of upgraded B-61-12 airdropped unguided nuclear bombs to NATO bases in Europe. Uh, your thoughts on all of this nuclear discussion and all of this reaction and allegation that it's Russia putting the conversation on the table, even, even though we know that was really a, a response to things that Tony Blinken said but here it's being reported it's the United States that's bringing the physical munitions into the theater. Yeah, I mean, this is something that probably would surprise, surprise a lot of Americans and probably a lot of Europeans, that the U.S. has some 100 to 150, depending on the source, uh, nuclear uh, gravity bombs, right, uh, B-61s um, in uh, Europe and has had them there for for decades. Right. Um, and there have been longstanding Pentagon plans to update them. Uh, uh, th this would require uh, replacing them out with ones that have already been updated, including a uh, tail kit to increase accuracy um, and and some more ability to dial up the scale of nuclear detonation uh, from low yield to, to medium yield um, uh, with these uh, uh, nuclear weapons that the U.S. has stationed in Europe. But they were not – this was not supposed to be done until next year, right? And the Europeans themselves are evidently – were shocked that they're going to be sent to Europe, that the swap out is going to take place now. Because um, this is clearly uh, – it, it cannot be read uh, by Russia as anything else other than a threat and an escalation. This is the sort of thing that if you were attempting to de-escalate the situation uh, of the conflict in Ukraine from the possibility of going nuclear, that you might even delay this deployment later. Right. Instead, they're speeding it up. They obviously are sending both a message with this, which can is only can be read as a nuclear threat, but also perhaps indicating that they want that capability in theater sooner rather than later. And Russia's got to take that into consideration. There's another interesting article here related, Finland willing to host NATO nuclear weapons on border with issue. Now, it does go later on to say while Finland may be willing to host nuclear weapons, it's unlikely they would be placed in the country after it joins NATO. Whatever the case may be, I don't think that Russia's going to sit back and twiddle their thumbs if they start putting nukes along the Finland border. At any rate, your thoughts, Mark? Yeah, I mean, this isn't a guarantee that uh, uh, Finland will host nuclear weapons like the other European countries, which includes Germany, uh, Belgium, the Netherlands and, and Italy that has the, those uh, gravity bombs that we just uh, talked about, the B-61s. Um, but um, uh, certainly they're leaving open that possibility. And that, again, is something that Russia is not going to uh, take uh, lightly, and they're not going to take under friendly uh, terms. So, uh, previously, the Russian-Finnish border was 
was demilitarized, right? It wasn't a military heavily zone, and it's not exactly the most hospitable terrain. It's half frozen swamp for most of the length of it, but it's it's a pretty substantial. It was mostly a police matter on both sides of the border. Now, with Finland joining NATO, Russia will be forced uh, to put uh, troops there. Right. Uh, to uh, militarize the border in response to what they will see as a threat of, uh, of a, an aggressive uh, military alliance that is uh, focused primarily on them. And then let's say down the road that Finland um, uh, uh, decides to host U.S. nuclear weapons, which would give NATO an advantage because this would be a threat from the north that Russia has not previously taken into their missile defense plans. They will have to take all kind of counteractions, and one of them will be that nuclear weapons will now be directed at Finland, would be directed at Finland in response. I do not see how this provides any security for the Finnish people. You take a previously demilitarized border, it will now be militarized, and if they go down this road and actually put nuclear weapons there, they'll have nuclear weapons pointed at them again. Does this make the Finnish people any safer? I'm not Finnish, but you know, just as an outside view, I, I would say that it does the exact opposite. So this... All of this, the, these two stories together with the B, with the upgraded B-61-12 missiles with Finland hosting or being willing to host nuclear weapons on their border, this sounds to me as though the United States is taking advantage and implementing the plans that the United States has been wanting to implement for a very, very long time which then goes back to validating the point that the United States really started this fight so it could finish uh, the, the, the NATO envelopment that it started back in the 90s. Yeah, I, I think there's something really to that, that the U.S. is pushing through measures that many European states were hesitant to do for exactly because it would put them on the escalatory front lines. But there's even something more dangerous to that coming as it does now in the tense state of conflict where NATO is, uh, you know, de facto in a proxy war with Russia in Ukraine right now. Doing this during the midst of that, that is, you know, putting the, the, the second hands on the doomsday clock a few seconds closer to midnight. That is, this is nuclear threat, saber rattling. It is escalating things on the nuclear level. That's dangerous, especially right now. Uh, n another article, Kremlin, uh, Kremlin responds to U.S. Troop, de troop deployment on Ukrainian border. Washington's military presence threatens Russia's security and won't be ignored, President Putin's spokeswoman warned. Your thoughts? Yeah, we, we talked about this, the uh, placement of the 101st Airborne Division and comments coming out of the reports that seem to indicate that, uh, you know, this might be a mission that the U.S. directly intervenes to create some type of safe zone, perhaps after some type of, of uh, false flag, a dirty bomb or otherwise, and sends the 101st Airborne into Odessa um, uh, to create a safe zone or something, basically to, to deny Russia 
the uh, capability to uh, 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 move on Odessa at a later date on this conflict, preserving a vital port city on the Black Sea uh, for uh, what might be a future rump uh, Kiev regime uh, state. Um, however, you know, Russia is certainly not going to um, uh, take that sitting down. And the obvious response for that is to uh, push up any plans they might have uh, to move further in the southwest direction from Kherson towards Odessa and to speed that up. Resulting in the 101st Airborne, we now then have U.S. troops in the direct line of fire uh, making miscalculations and errors even more likely. Dead soldiers, Americans start screaming, we got to retaliate, and now we have seriously opened up a can of worms. Yeah, um, I mean, uh, if Americans are seen as killing Russians or Russians are seen as killing Americans, that will start a uh, domestic uh, spiral uh, demanding political response uh, at home on either of the two countries. And uh, there is always the danger uh, that 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 could lead uh, to something that spins out of control into a nuclear confrontation. And, and it's been talked about a lot recently, but it's something that needs to be talked about. Russia and uh, the United States have successfully deconflicted in very tense terms in Syria for some seven years now with the U.S. continuing to militarily occupy uh, East Syria, including Syria's oil and wheat fields, um, uh, you know, uh, as a, as a, a direct in invasion and occupation of, of the east of that country. Uh, but uh, they've largely avoided combat and the, the proxy forces that the U.S. supports there the uh, YPG by any other name, have not uh, engaged in real combat with the Syrian government. Um, this is not the situation in Ukraine where there is a direct proxy war. And there is would be, I believe, very little chance for deconfliction between U.S. and Russian forces if they were both on the ground in Ukraine, uh, you know, uh, uniformed at the same time. Mark Sobot is a Moscow-based international relations security analyst. You're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm your host, Garland Nixon, here with my co-host, Dr. Wilmer Leon. More on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm your host, Garland Nixon, with my co-host, Dr. Wilmer Leon. Thank you, Garland. President Biden seems to have ordered a feckless, insignificant progressive caucus to denounce themselves. Joining us now to discuss this matter, we have Margaret Kimberly. Margaret is the Black Agenda Report senior editor and columnist. Margaret, welcome back to The Critical Hour. Thanks so much. And in Jack Black Agenda Report, a great uh, website I highly recommend. You can just go to blackagendareport.com for all the great uh, articles and information. Margaret Kimberly writes, progressives made a mealy-mouthed appeal to Biden to engage in talks regarding Ukraine. He slapped them down, and they in turn slapped themselves. Margaret, your thoughts? 
Well, uh, I, what a fiasco. Uh, yeah, just a few days ago, October 24th, the Progressive Caucus, 30 members, signed a letter, and it was an odd letter. Um, they uh, praised Biden for standing by Ukraine and said, yes, we should be giving them billions of dollars, but uh, there should be negotiations with, uh, with Russia about the future of Ukraine. And uh, it was, you know, not one thing. Uh, it, it was all over the place. Support, but we should negotiate. And they were trying to thread this needle, I suppose, uh, on an issue where people have to actually take a stance. But under, I understood it politically. And despite that, I did not dismiss it. I saw it as a possibility of a beginning. Uh, any talk of negotiation has been declared off limits. Any difference uh, from the pro-Ukraine government, uh, let's just keep giving them billions of dollars. Any difference from that narrative has been slapped down. And I saw it as a possibility of something new. But 24 hours later, actually, I think it was less than 24 hours later, uh, Progressive Caucus Chairwoman Pramila Jayapal said, so sorry, we're withdrawing our letter. Uh, it was written several months ago. Everybody didn't see it. And it was very odd. I mean, clearly a lie. And, you know, when you tell one lie, you end up telling a hundred. But basically, um, some of the members were under pressure. AOC, uh, Jamal Bowman, who both uh, signed uh, the letter, had been confronted publicly by people who were members of the LaRouche Party, but they were asking a good question. How do you claim to be a progressive when you say the American people should be giving billions of dollars to uh, a neo-Nazi government in Ukraine? They were looking for cover, and I think that's why the letter came out. But they didn't think it through. They didn't think about what will we do when inevitably the Biden administration um, uh, tells us we should not have done it and starts to put pressure on. So uh, the letter tried to have it both ways, and they made it even worse by denouncing themselves. Uh, it's a very, very sad story and something that could have been the beginning of something positive uh, ends up actually taking the anti-war movement uh, backwards. To your point, they didn't think it through because n not one of them, not one of the 30 that signed the letter said, what are we going to do when we get pushback in anticipation of pushback? And if you know the pushback is coming, what you try to do, if you're smart, is diffuse it before it comes. They they, they did none of that. Uh, so what so what does this really say to you? about the broader politics of elected progressives in this country and the Congressional Black Caucus. There seems to be, to me, obviously, zero leadership. Oh, absolutely. Well, they have a, a leadership, but it doesn't lead them in the direction of anything good. Uh, there are were uh, Black Caucus members, I think five or six of them, who signed uh, this letter, but they will not stand up to Democratic Party leadership. So to answer your question, elected progressives are not progressive. They may have been at some time, but once they get there, they see who really runs the show and they give in. And this is just the latest and uh, uh, one of the worst examples of the way in which they have been 
uh, co-opted. And I, I wonder if all 30 of them, I, I suspect a few of them may want to see this, and this was an opportunity for them to begin the discussion, but they had the rug pulled out from under them. And uh, uh, so we have to stop talking about these congressional progressives. They are mouthpieces for the Biden administration. And uh, so they were doomed to fail because they, they are still that. Uh, instead of this being the beginning of a new path, they ran back to uh, what they always do. These are unprincipled people. They're not even very smart people. So it, they present the worst of all uh, possible worlds. You know, I, I didn't really feel, to be quite honest, I criticized the letter from the very beginning as a tongue bath, really, for the neocons. When I look at it, let me read a sentence. Your support for the self-defense of an independent, sovereign, and democratic state. They go on and on and on. And so the fact of the matter is this. We overthrew the government and put in a puppet government. They ain't independent, nor are they sovereign. And anywhere, I mean, they've shut down all the opposition. They literally locked up the opposition candidate. It's none of the above. So when I look at it, the first thing I see is you are taking all of the Bolton, John Bolton, Max Boot, neocon talking points and saying, yeah, they're right. The neocons are right about everything. But maybe we should talk a little bit. I, I just found that counterproductive, Mar- Margaret. Your thoughts? I, that's a good point. Um, but it was I, actually even worse than that. You know, you could see it as uh, people being, um, um, I believe I called them mealy mouths. But in effect, they didn't mean any of it. Um, their praise of the Ukrainian government and their praise of um the Biden administration was meant to blunt the criticism that was going to come, but because they don't really stand for anything, they folded completely and uh, just made themselves look ridiculous. And, you know, people all over the country have been waiting for uh, some kind of change, an indication that somebody in Congress is going to question this president who's been so reckless, who said the Russian economy would crumble. It hasn't. Um, uh, who uh, and, and as a result has caused this worldwide economic catastrophe, this economic war of attrition has done great damage all over the world, done great damage here. The midterm elections are uh, a couple of weeks from now, and it does not look good for the Democrats, and it doesn't look good in large part because uh, most people who may not be focused on this, but they know that their needs aren't being met. They know that there have been billions of dollars for Ukraine, but there's always an excuse when it comes to uh, what they uh, what they need. So there was uh, some hope, but it's been dashed. And But there may be a good lesson here that we can't look to these people at all. The anti-war movement has to get its act together, has to be organized, because these people cannot... Um, cannot be counted on. We're the ones who have to do the pushing. And it's and it's very, uh, very dangerous time with Biden talking about nuclear Armageddon. Putin hasn't said anything about nuclear weapons, by the way. All that talk has come from the president of the United States. And so we do need leadership on this issue, but it's going to have to be leadership from the people and not any of uh, the squad or the progressives or the Black Caucus or any of these people who do not have the courage of even the tiniest bit of conviction. 
People's Dispatch writes, why Democrats could lose in the midterms. And, and, and unlike, you know, the stuff that we normally see in the mainstream media in the U.S., it's because they've gone too far left. It says inflation and the economy are top concerns for the people of the U.S. in the upcoming midterm elections. The Democrats address neither. Margaret, your thoughts? Oh, absolutely. You know, Biden, see, they came up with this stupid phrase, Putin's price hike, you know, and that was supposed to uh, uh, convince people, A, that everything was somebody else's fault and uh, that there was nothing for them to uh, worry about. But people are very worried and should be with uh, um, uh, inflation, uh, the, the, the hopes that this administration would come in and actually do something for the people, but instead there's no Build Back Better, uh, unemployment ending, child care tax credit ending, no increase in the minimum wage, no rent protections, none of the things that they were promised. They didn't even, they even cheated people on, uh, as you recall, $600 uh, stimulus payment. So um, uh, that's what motivates people to come out. And the party in power usually does lose in the, in the midterms, but uh, it's especially difficult when there are all these serious problems that were never addressed and a lot of problems that were created by this administration uh, with this uh, uh, fantasy foreign policy that somehow they're going to weaken Russia if they destroy the, the world economy enough. And in this piece, they say, despite the problems that you articulated, uh, neither party seems willing to offer any sweeping changes. This this can mean that the blame for worsening material conditions will be laid on the party in power, the Democrats. And I think that's an incredibly uh, insightful statement because the the Republicans, as far as I can discern, aren't putting anything substantive or tangible on the table. For example, they keep talking about uh, Obamacare is bad. They have offered zero in terms of any kind of health care plan for the people in this country. Uh, but Joe Biden, during, on the campaign trail, offered the world and now has given back very little, if anything. And so it's really not inflation that's causing the Democrats' problems. It's the fact they haven't delivered on the things that they promised when people voted to put them in, in, in power in the first place. Exactly. And, you know, it's, it's a, become a joke now. What did he say? And, and um, I, I remember the Georgia elections weren't settled. And he said, if you, you know, give us these two seats, you'll get $2,000, you'll get this, you'll get that. Well, then it's, oh, well, it's such a slim majority in Mansion and cinema. They won't let us do anything. So um, it's all been a, a big farce. And people can see that, what, how, however knowledgeable they are about this, uh, um, the inner workings of government, they know that they did not deliver on the things that they were expecting. So when they come back and say, well, if I get two more seats, this will help us, who's listening to that? Um, only people who are um, willing to be conned, and most people are not. So they need a big turnout of people who are enthusiastic for them. I don't think there'll be a big turnout, and I don't think there are many people who are enthusiastic for them. So their control of Congress is in jeopardy. Well, re really, really quickly, if I could, Garland, uh, Margaret, we've been saying on this show for a very long time 
that Joe Biden really didn't want the Senate in the House because he needed a foil to be able to justify or rationalize why he wasn't able to deliver on the things he promised. He messed around and got control of the House and the Senate and still failed. And so now when we look at who's going to be sworn in in January, most likely the Republicans will have one, if not both, of the houses. And then all of a sudden we'll probably start seeing a whole lot of things getting done because Joe Biden will then say, well, the people have spoken and we've got to give them what they asked for. Oh, sure. The things that will get done are, are not the things that the, the people who voted for Biden. It won't be any exactly. of the things that people wanted. So um, it will be more, you know, Clinton called it triangulating. They, they, there's always a name for it. I just call it treachery. It's just political tre- treachery and it's uh, uh, corruption. Oh, exactly. You know, the worst part of it, Margaret, is that when you look at the promises made by the Biden administration in the lead up to the 2020 election, it's obvious that they knew what the people wanted. They just said, hey, you guys want this? Yeah, we'll give it to you. But then once they got in office, they just have no intention of doing it. Uh, 30 seconds. Yes. And and there are people who don't want them to. So even if they want to the oligarchic class and yes, we do have an oligarchy here, they always tell them no. So they can talk about build back better all they want. But at the end of the day, that greedy class of people says, no, you're not giving the people anything, not so much as a pittance. Margaret Kimberly is the Black Agenda Report editor and senior columnist. Go to blackagendareport.com for more. Also, check out blackallianceforpeace.com. You're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm your host, Garland Nixon, here with my co-host, Dr. Wilmer Leon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm your host, Garland Nixon, here with my co-host, Dr. Wilmer Leon. Thank you, Garland. China is confident that it is closer than ever to reunification. Also, technological decoupling from China is a war by other means, and North Korea considers another nuclear test. Joining us now to discuss this and more, we have George Koo. George is a journalist, social activist, international business consultant, and a chemical engineer. George, welcome back to The Critical Hour. Thank you. Nice to be with you all. Well, let's start with a fairly alarming story. Most uh, U.S. foreign policy stories these days are pretty alarming. U.S. allies warn North Korea, North Korean nuclear tests would draw unprecedentedly strong response. Deputy Secretary of State Wendy Sherman met with her South Korean and Japanese counterparts in Tokyo. But that ain't the real alarming part, George. When we go down to the bottom of this anti-war story, it says... Sherman also met with Japanese and South Korean officials on Tuesday and threatened that the U.S. could use nuclear weapons to defend its allies. She said the U.S. will, quote, use the full range of U.S. defense capabilities to defend our allies, including nuclear conventional and missile defense capabilities. George Koo. Well, I'm I'm not sure the South Koreans or Japan would feel very reassured by the <laughs> the U.S. offer to send nuclear bombs and missiles to North Korea because there's always chance if those missiles with an atomic bomb on it go awry and didn't hit the right target, you know, 
The first one that's going to pay will be the South Koreans, and the second one that will pay will probably be the Japanese. And having all those weapons flying overhead can't get can't make you sleep better at night uh, if I were them. So that kind of assurance is not much of an assurance. And in point of fact, as I've talked about in, in, on this show in the past, the United States had a perfect opportunity to um, make peace with North Korea, sign a agreement so that they're no longer at war because they never did sign a peace treaty. Uh, they're still at war, technically. Clinton passed that on to George W. George Ali passed it up took a pass on it and declared North Korea the axis of evil. And then when Trump came on, he ostensibly was going to make America great again by shaking hands with uh, Kim Jong-un, the North Korean leader. But somehow that didn't lead to anywhere. And it seems like the only play in the playbook in Washington is to be bellicose, to demonize to condemn and to threat, uh, to threaten violence, and 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 they don't seem to have any uh, any other way of thinking. How not only secure can South Korea and Japan be with Wendy Sherman's statements when you mention if the bombs go awry, it could also be if the winds blow in a different direction, that nuclear fallout can wind up impacting them. Japan has a very interesting history with the United States and its use of nuclear weapons. And when and when the United States talks about defending its allies, looking at how the United States has dealt with Ukraine and looking at how the United States has blown up Nord Stream 2, that hasn't fared very well for the for the economies of its allies. I don't know that the United States is a is a trustworthy ally per Henry Kissinger's comments. Well, you, you, you hit the nail on the button. The U.S. only cares about U.S. interests and everybody else, friend or foe, be damned. Um, let the consequences fall where they may. And if the Europeans go without gas in the winter, well, that's tough luck on them. If uh, uh, um, there's inflation hits and there's food shortage all around the world, well, that's tough luck on everybody else. You know, one of the advantages and one of the ways that justify Washington's arrogance, frankly, is that we are we are protected by two big oceans, and we can argue that we are self-sufficient in food and fuel and energy, so uh, we can afford to take these aggressive, hostile, anti-peace positions. And, of course, in the, in the end, um, we're going to pay, just like everybody else in the world is going to pay for this kind of stance. Asia Times article, Is the Clock Really Ticking Toward a Taiwan War? Xi simplifies Congress report language on Taiwan while analysts seek clues from newly appointed Central Military Commission members. Um, as I understand it, the... Um, the Chinese leadership has very recently said they are not intent on a military attempt at reunification anytime soon. George. Yeah. Th that, to me, that's a yes and no answer, Carlin, because, yes, they've always lead their opening statements and continue to insist 
that they are in favor of peaceful reunification. And they even make the statement that time is on their side and sooner or later, Taiwan people will see the, see the light. On the other hand, the United States is continuing to push the red line. Uh, to a point that when Nancy Pelosi makes that sudden appearance in Taipei in early August and Chinese responded by flying missiles over Taiwan by planes totally ignoring any claim of Taiwan airspace, by attacking the various, by dropping missiles in various strategic areas that represents how they would attack and land in the island of Taiwan, that should have been a message to the Washington, but Washington is famously tone deaf and didn't catch it. In fact, more officials uh, went into Taiwan after Pelosi. Now they're uh, supplying uh, real um, menacing arms to the Taiwan to the Taiwan military. They're training the Taiwan military. They are um, um, reassuring the Taipei DPP government that the, the government have um, have the American uh, Americans back. So the the commentators in Taiwan don't believe it. They they know that they're going to be left hanging on the, on their own. Even some of the DPP ruling uh, part is dubious about how much support they can count on from Washington. If push comes to shove, there's a, there's a, there's a battle, there's a fighting. So um, on the other hand, the DPV government has no power, no clout, no influence, and they are not willing to say, okay, we're part of China, that's negotiate. Well, given all that, they have no choice. As the Taiwan com- Taiwanese competi- commentators say, all they can do is hug the leg of Uncle Sam and hope for the best. Well, the best is not going to come out this way. And now we have the Taiwan Relations Act, a new version going through Congress. And, of course, I haven't seen the specifics or particulars, but supposedly it will go to the next step and recognize the sovereignty of the government on Taiwan. Well, that is clearly a declaration of a war. There's no ifs and buts about it. And, you know, and the U.S. position has always to promote, hey, Taiwan is a beacon of democracy, and that's why we're making all these positions. But in point of fact, the DPP government is is at every bit as corrupt, if not more corrupt, than Washington. They They put out for bids, for example, and family and friends bid on a low bid on any construction project, and then they proceed to uh, build the government for add-ons and overruns until the actual bill is three, five, ten times their actual bid. And that, if that isn't corruption, I don't know what is. The indep- independent media and any opposition are not are taken. The license for broadcasting are taken away. They only they can only rely on the internet to express their points of view. The the island is far from being a beacon of democracy. And I will just say one more thing: if the 
Beijing is pro- provoked into a actual firefight, I believe, as Xi Jinping has said, Taiwan people are our compatriots. We will not fire at them unless absolutely necessary. And I'm just going to venture a guess that the way they can handle that is the PLA will first take out the U.S. naval vessels in the nearby water, and they might fire on some strategic uh, centers, such as the command center uh, in Taiwan. But that should be a, a clear signal that they mean business if up to now Washington hasn't gotten the message. Well, to that sentiment that China doesn't want to fire on Taiwan or the Taiwanese people, what does that mean in terms of the Taiwanese people responding to a military call from their, the Taiwanese responding to a military call from their government? Well, that's probably likely to, to be a mixed uh, response. The, the young Taiwanese in their, in their uh, you know, teens and 20s, some of them are really thinking that they need to go fight and defend their, uh, their quote-unquote, motherland. Uh, there is that sentiment. But the older adults in Taiwan re- fully understand that they don't stand a chance. If, if there really comes to fighting down to door-to-door, alley by alley, you know, the density of Taiwan is such that the people will just, population will just be wiped out. There's no hope of defending and standing up to PLA, yeah, even if the Americans were to come to their, uh, to their side. And bear in mind, it would take weeks, if not months, for the American soldiers to show up if they indeed show up, which I am very skeptical of because we're getting to be very good, Washington is, getting other people to fight the proxy fight and not risk any of our own soldiers and put them at risk. And let me ask you this. Do you think, we've only got about a minute, do you think that the Taiwanese are looking at um, Ukraine, kind of uh, learning what's going on there, or is it just the Taiwanese leadership is doesn't care and they're going, going to hurdle um, hopelessly forward? The Taiwanese leadership, as I said, are, are not unif- unified in what their thoughts are. And, of course, if, if firefight were to begin, they were the first ones on the plane and getting the hell out of Taiwan. But the people in Taiwan, they can see what it means to be fighting a pro- proxy fire. And as I said, the population density in Taiwan is very different from Ukraine. In Ukraine, the Russians can direct strategically their, their, their missiles and knock out infrastructure, whether it's uh, power plants, it's uh, the uh, command center, and, and so on. Taiwan is so dense that it's very difficult not to have innocent civilians pay the price if that war were to come. And I think most of the people in Taiwan really understand and know that. And so whether they believe in the TPP government or not, they are much more in favor of the status quo and let, thing, let the sleeping dog lie. George Koo is a journalist, social activist, international business consultant, and chemical engineer. You're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm your host, Garland Nixon, with my co-host, Dr. Wilmer Leon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. 
We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm your host, Garland Nixon, here with my co-host, Dr. Wilmer Leon. Thank you, Garland. Transportation may be brought to a halt today due to a one-day strike in France. Our own Wyatt Reed, who's a Sputnik analyst, is on the ground in Paris covering the event. Wyatt, welcome to The Critical Hour. Thank you, Garland. Thank you, Wilmer. Always good to be on with you guys. All right. So let us know what's happening there. We understand there's supposed to be a one day strike and that there could be very significant disruptions in French society. What do we need to know, Wyatt Reed? Absolutely. Well, the disruptions today were relatively minimal. We had some delays uh, in in Paris in terms of metro services. Uh, relatively minor, though. This was not quite as big of a a strike as we saw last week on the 18th. Certainly nothing like the big so-called Black Thursday strike that we're expecting in two weeks from now on November 10th. Uh, We probably had around 30,000 demonstrators throughout the country of France coming out under the banner of the CGT, that is the Confederation General du Travail, the General Workers' Confederation. And what they were out and demanding was basically, uh, most importantly, an increase in the minimum wage. They want uh, 15 euros an hour, uh, that's uh, 2,000 euros a month. They have a 10-point list of demands. They're also calling, I should say, for a 32-hour work week and for the age of retirement to be brought down to 60. But aside from that, they have about 10 other key demands. They want uh, wage parity for men and women. They want for a replacement income, a social security to be given to all unemployed, that that same level of 15 an hour, they want an increase in the level of pensions for retirees to that same 15 an hour level. They want scholarship allowances for students and young people who are looking for their first jobs and an increase in the wage for apprentices and interns. And they want rents to be capped at 20% of household income the value-added tax to be reduced to 5.5% on basic necessities, especially food, energy. They want fuel prices to decrease via subsidies uh, imposed on multinational oil companies, and they want an end for exemptions for businesses from having to contribute to these Social Security taxes. So this uh, was mainly brought about by that CGT which is part of the reason why you saw diminished levels of workers in the streets today, uh, whereas earlier they had been joined um, pretty much universally by groups affiliated with other unions, um, the FO, and especially NUPES, that is the kind of political arm of the uh, the France Insoumise, the France Unbowed Party of Jean-Luc Mélenchon. Um, they were not necessarily joined, at least at a national level, by these same parties today. You certainly did have, at the individual branch level, quite a bit of collaboration. But they are framing this as basically a warm-up, as a way of keeping people uh, out in the streets and keeping the fire alive and making sure that this momentum that they've gotten going doesn't die, doesn't die out um, before that next big strike, which again is planned for November 10th. Understanding the uh, the dynamics that are existing right now within the uh, French political landscape, what does this do for um, Macron uh, or, or to him? Uh, is he now more inclined to to listen uh, and to acquiesce? And also, it sounds like a lot of the things that 
they're uh, striking for are they sound very similar to issues that are uh, very prevalent here. Absolutely. Well, this is certainly not going to make his job of kind of maintaining normalcy while imposing this neoliberal austerity regime upon people. It's not going to make that much easier for him. On the other hand, they have done to their credit, if you can say that, um, they've done a pretty good job of basically dividing and conquering and keeping these different union struggles separate and making sure that they don't combine into one big, uh, big, larger, sort of broader movement. They had some success in terms of ending the ongoing strike by oil refinery workers that had produced some pretty dramatic scenes that a lot of people saw on social media. Due to the fuel shortages, there were quite a bit of, of fights breaking out and in lines that were fairly large for these uh, gasoline queues. And those have kind of ended now with the oil refineries that companies like Esso and Total Energy having gone back to work. The nuclear power plant striking workers have also negotiated a settlement. And they weren't necessarily, they were. They, I should say they were more favorable terms for the government than they were necessarily for the workers. They didn't get much of what they wanted. But uh, in terms of kind of maintaining just a boots on the ground presence in the streets, this was a success in that sense for the CGT. Probably not quite as many people as they had hoped for. And I'm sure they wanted to see themselves joined by more disparate forces. Uh, but we're definitely talking about a, a moment in time when the Macron government has been pretty successful at neutralizing this kind of broad uh, interprofessional solidarity. And so, you know, it, it, it is, I, I'm sure, on some level a bit disappointing for them that they didn't get more people out in the streets. But these, the dynamics, the social dynamics, which are pushing people to go out and demand greater uh, social services, higher salaries, those aren't going anywhere anytime soon. You have double-digit inflation and especially hitting and impacting the, the basic foods and uh, gasoline energy prices. The, that issue is going nowhere anytime soon, especially without a serious uh, policy proposal coming from the part of the government. So I would say we're seeing a kind of uh, liminal moment, a kind of intermediary moment where Things could go either way at this point, depending on how successful these different social sectors are at creating this broad solidarity and broad unity. If they're able to mobilize greater factions coming up on November 10th, then it will certainly be a serious challenge to Macron. Um, obviously, it's too soon to say exactly what's going to happen in these next couple of weeks. But if I had to guess, I would say that you know, people's people's issues are not getting better. They are, broadly speaking, getting worse. We are going into winter. Energy prices are getting higher. People are being forced to deal with uh, unreasonable, in, in my view, uh, energy bills. And there's not been a whole lot done in terms of the government side to address those issues so far. So, yeah, no, I think this, I think this, this kind of uh, energy is, is going to increase. Obviously, all of this coming from the fact that Macron forced through a one-year budget 
that was done under what's called Article 49.3, which is a way of bypassing the National Assembly um, and and basically undemocratically forcing through a one-year budget instead of democratically passing a five-year budget. And that obviously brought about a, quite a bit of dissent. You saw a no-confidence vote that was done jointly by far-right and far-left forces that just narrowly avoided passing. So Macron at this point maintains his spot at the top of the French government, although he does not have a majority and has serious difficulty getting any legislation passed. Uh, Let me ask you this. Um, As you move around in France, do you see... Um, for yourself, evidence of the economic problems, such as, you know, problems with heat or, you know, prices or things of that nature? Well, I haven't gone to probably the most affected areas. I've spent most of my time here in Paris, which is more of a metropolitan zone. It's going to be one of the less affected, at least sort of the the sectors that I have been in. Obviously, if, if I went to some of the poorer areas, I'm sure I I would uh, meet a number of people who've been dealing with this, who it's taken a, a greater toll on. Some of the workers that I have spoken to have, have described uh, difficulty in terms of paying their bills and keeping their households afloat. But if you, I think you really have to go out further into the countryside to see the most affected sectors. So, you know, right here, this is, uh, you know, the heart of Paris. This is kind of the probably least affected by the economic uh, turmoil that we're seeing going on. But outside of, outside of Paris, things are getting bad, just like they're getting bad all throughout Europe. And that's why you see these continued mobilizations and these continued strikes. TASS reports British foreign policy to stay the course under Prime Minister Sunak. And uh, the, the, they say that policy won't change. As the same people hold the government's key positions, uh, Russian ambassador to London, Andre Kellen, said on a uh, Russian uh, television channel, y- your thoughts on how is uh, Sunak being received? Well, I think he's been being received quite optimistically, especially in comparison with his blundering predecessor, Liz Truss, who left office with just a 10 percent approval rating. Obviously, he's a talented politician. He's a much more of a charismatic and competent face. He has, as you've noted, been very clear that he intends to not change policy one bit when it comes to Ukraine. This was kind of the top of the list of the subjects of discussion when he spoke with um, the prime minister of Ireland, when he spoke to U.S. President Joe Biden uh, and a number of other of his uh, of his uh, other colleagues in that similar position, he described Ukraine as being one of the main topics of discussion, and he said he looked forward to continuing this kind of collaboration in terms of funding them, financing them, and providing them with weapons. So that certainly will not change when it comes to the. UK military, he has maintained Ben Wallace in that defense minister position. When it comes to the Treasury, he has maintained uh, Jeremy Hunt as chancellor, and that indicates, I think, a continuity in terms of the economic priorities. So we shouldn't expect, I think, a whole lot in terms of the change in the direction of this government. I think 
we might see, in fact, uh, a change in terms of the speed or the efficiency with which they go in that direction. Because, uh, as I noted, Sunak is, is significantly more competent. Uh, he does uh, command a little bit more respect. And you can see that even in the news articles that are coming out around his accession to the prime ministership. It's greeted by establishment media as kind of a progressive win. Here's the first person of color at number 10 Downing Street. That's kind of the attitude that you see when you read articles from The New York Times, from The Washington Post, CNN, etc. So whereas Liz Truss was a bumbling, you know, kind of unfortunate figure who you couldn't help but look down on in some ways because she was just constantly uh, tripping over herself, saying the wrong thing. Uh, even, you know, you, you saw that kind of almost a level of pity from the mainstream media. You don't see that anymore around Rishi Sunak. And I think that tells you something in terms of how he's perceived, at least in terms of the establishment. Wyatt Reed's a Sputnik News analyst on the ground in Paris working on these important issues. I'm your host, Garland Nixon, here with my co-host, Dr. Wilmer Leon. There's another hour on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm your host, Garland Nixon, here with my co-host, Dr. Wilmer Leon. Thank you, Garland. The U.S. is openly openly meddling in Iran's internal affairs by supporting unrest in the Islamic Republic. Also, elderly Palestinian activists are beaten by settlers in Israel, and uh, apparently Lebanon and Israel may have just signed the gas deal. To elaborate on this and more, we've got Laith Marouf. Laith is a broadcaster and journalist based in Beirut, Lebanon. Laith, welcome back to The Critical Hour. Thank you for having me. Now, according to The Washington Post where democracy dies in darkness, as they tell us. Thousands of people poured into the streets of Masa Amini's hometown Wednesday and marched to her grave. Iranian security forces responded as they have throughout the course of the nationwide protest, inspired by her death with violence and arrest. It sounds to me like the usual propaganda. The U.S. is meddling in the affairs of Iran in the worst kind of way. Your thoughts, Laith Maru. Definitely, of course, uh, you look over the past uh, few weeks that these demonstrations originally were much bigger. Uh, now they're much smaller over those this span of this month. Uh, there is uh, 20 somewhat um, police officers that were lynched or shot to death. And so imagine in the United States, if during, let's say, Black Lives Matter, even one police officer was shot dead or lynched in the streets. Uh, this, we know how the American police would have responded. Similarly, we know that this would not be acceptable in France or Germany, that the, the police forces of those countries will also come down hard on anybody using weapons. Uh, and or lynching of their police forces in the streets. Uh, so when we uh, put that in perspective uh, and see the uh, actual number of security forces that have been 
uh, killed because of propaganda being pumped by the United Kingdom, the Saudis, the United States, the hundreds of television and uh, radio stations uh, broadcasting from outside Iran into Iran, encouraging the population to use violence uh, to achieve some of their uh, rights uh, that they're requesting. Uh, by the way, there's more uh, foreign Persian-speaking media broadcasting into Iran than there's actual Iranian-based media. Can you imagine that? Uh, and uh, here we are, uh, you know, what the United States attempted to do has failed uh, because these demonstrations didn't go anywhere as they collapsed. And today, just before, earlier in the day, there was an attack by ISIS on a shrine in a major Iranian city. Uh, 19 civilians killed uh, inside the shrine. And uh, we know this is how things uh, played out in Syria, where the United States uh, moved this colored revolution first and then brought in all this armed, uh, uh, you know, fanatics uh, packed by the Saudis uh, with their Wahhabi cult. And th this is what they're attempting to play out right now in Iran. I think it's uh, a, a, a game that has already been played and it's not going to succeed. There are a couple things. First of all, I think it's important for people to understand that these are similar tactics to those that were used to foment the coup resulting in the overthrow of Mohammed, Mohammed Mossadegh in 1953. Uh, there's a couple sentences in this story that I find interesting. They make it appear as though the people are in the streets and the government is in jeopardy. But they quote Ali Alfone, we are in a situation where the protesters are incapable of overthrowing the regime and the regime is incapable of forcing people to go home. So they make it sound like it's a standoff. And then they say, despite escalating violence by security forces and a rising death toll among protesters, the clerics who lead Iran have yet to fully unleash the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps. So it seems as though the government isn't so concerned that they're using the forces they would need to use if what is being portrayed were actually true. Does that make sense? Yes. I mean, look, the United States deployed the National Guard across all of the United States when Black Lives Matter was out in the streets. And uh, we saw massive repression and use of basically the military to clear out the streets. It's not even like uh, special forces or, uh, you know, anti-riots. No, this is what the United States used. Right now, when you actually uh, look at what's happening in Iran, there's practically no demonstrations left. There's uh, very little demonstrations with a few hundred people here and there. They're not being repressed because they're so small, actually. Um, and the United States uh, is reverting to the 
plan, the first plan, which is to activate all these terrorist groups on the border zones of Iran, whether it's in uh, Balochistan, Pakistan on that border zone, or on the Iraqi uh, Kurdistan regions. Uh, And as we saw, the this is what is developing today with the ISIS declared and announced uh, attack. ISIS claimed the attack on this uh, holy shrine and uh, the the murder of all those civilians. Um, and it's going to be a, a a game that we already saw in Syria specifically. We saw it also briefly in in uh, Libya where things uh, played out very fast because uh, the, the, the United States and the West um, uh, lied to Russia and uh, led to what we saw. Uh, today, this is not going to happen in Iran. Um, I understand now also that um, there may have been a signature or some kind of an agreement between Lebanon and Israel regarding the gas fields. Yes, today, finally, the American quote-unquote negotiator, uh, Hochstein, who is, you know, as as many of your listeners remember, is an ex-Israeli, you know, officer, and uh, he came with the final deal to be signed. It was signed by the president of Lebanon and then brought down to Qana, uh, and that's the border zone between Lebanon and uh, occupied Palestine. Um, and in the presence of uh, United Nations in the demilitarized zone, each of the delegations uh, sat in separate rooms because of the protocol of Lebanon still uh, at war with the Zionist colony and not uh, acknowledging it as a legitimate state. Uh, The Lebanese uh, formal delegation signed in one room. Uh, The papers were moved by the United Nations to the next room where the Zionists signed on theirs. Um, And now uh, this was a historic moment uh, because Lebanon now can start extracting its own gas fields. As this signing was happening, the uh, Israeli Air Force and Navy were simulating a raids on South Lebanon <laughs> through air and sea around the signing of this agreement. Just to tell you how, how delicate this moment is. Uh, we know the Israeli elections are going to happen uh, in the next uh, week or so, and uh, who knows who's going to be in power and if this deal even will be still on the books tomorrow. Well, that, in fact, takes me to my question, because there's a line in this Times of Israel article that's that says, uh, it's not every day that the U.S. and France stand behind us and provide security and economic guarantees for the agreement. This is according to uh, Lapid, the uh, the Prime Minister, Yair Lapid, the Prime Minister of Israel. So, understanding what the United States did in the uh, JCPOS, and understanding how France just basically has gone along with U.S. action, what level of confidence confidence does anybody have that the U.S. is actually standing behind anything? 
I don't think uh, the resistance specifically has any confidence. Uh, so when we're talking about Hezbollah, they definitely have uh, proved that they have backup plans and that they can force the hand of the Zionists and their American masters. And uh, what we will see now as the American empire continues to collapse and its ability to maneuver in regions uh, diminishes, is more asserting of a force by the resistance across the region here, the resistance axis. Um, so I, I'm not worried about anybody being fooled that there is, uh, you know, because next president could be like Trump again <laughs> of the United States. Right. And right. of course, he could be, you know, giving Israel the whole world, not only <laughs> the West Bank and East Jerusalem and the Golan Heights, he'll give them the whole Arabic world uh, if they want to. So, uh, you know, it, it will all depend, the guarantees for this agreement to uh, come into effect and to stay in, in effect, it will all be dependent on the continued rise of the military force of uh, the axis of resistance. Laith, uh, another article, IDF uh, probe finds errors led to death of senior officer in West Bank gun battle. Here's the one thing I pick out of that. I've read that article. They're going to demolish the homes of the families of these people, right? In America, that that's illegal. In most countries, you can't say Garland Nixon stole a, can, uh, a, stole a candy bar from the store. Therefore, we're going to go burn down his family's house or other people's house or wherever he lived. And, and they don't do that to Israelis, only Palestinians. At any rate, your thought on this article. Yeah, this is like normalized, obviously, uh, the, uh, the grotesque um, dehumanization and open in the, in the pub public humiliation and torture uh, um, and uh, collective punishment of the Palestinian people. It's done in public. The, you know, everybody sees it. And it's, uh, you know, obviously, uh, un it's unbelievable that you have still Zionists fighting in the Western media, calling anybody that, uh, you know, calls them um, fascist and Jewish white supremacist uh, and genocidal, calling the, anybody that does that criticism as anti-Jewish. Um, and so... Here, uh, with this, uh, you know, liquidation of uh, this Israeli officer uh, by the resistance in uh, Palestine, uh, you know, the Israelis will attempt to find, ex you know, ways to minimize the achievements of the nascent youth uh, militarized uh, rebellion that is uh, in the West Bank right now. Uh, for instance, the attack on uh, Nablus just two nights ago that uh, the special forces of the, the Zionist uh, uh, military attempted to uh, capture some of the leaders of the Lions Den um, militia. And the Lions Den uh, militia actually uh, set up a trap for them and, uh, uh, you know, enticed them to go deep into the old city of Nablus where they were gunned down. And, and 
the Lions then is claiming that they liquidated the whole unit. And that's why the Israelis had to use anti-tank and drone uh, missiles to attempt to extract the bodies. And we will hear in the next few days announcement of uh, some Israeli soldiers uh, dying of overdose or, uh, you know, flipping their truck by accident or uh, dying in an exercise to cover up the achievements of the lines then as this uh, situation with this story. Laith Marouf is a broadcaster and journalist based in Beirut, Lebanon. You're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm your host, Garland Nixon, here with my co-host, Dr. Wilmer Leon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm your host, Garland Nixon, here with my co-host, Dr. Wilmer Leon. Thank you, Garland. Elon Musk posted a number of tweets mocking The New York Times for its dubious sourcing and mimicked its attack on him for meddling in global affairs. Also, Kiev renames a street after a Nazi collaborator and the progressives in the U.S. Congress wimp out on their recommendation for diplomacy. Joining us now to discuss these stories, we have Dr. Linwood Tawheed. Dr. Tawheed is the Associate Professor of Economics at the University of Missouri in Kansas City. Dr. Tawheed, welcome back to The Critical Hour. Thank you. Now, here's an interesting story. The world's richest man, Elon Musk, has hit back at The New York Times after it ran an article on Wednesday accusing him of acting as a, quote, geopolitical chaos agent and critiquing his views on Ukraine, Iran and China. Your thoughts, Dr. Tawheed? Well, I think uh, one of the things that's, of course, interesting about this story is that uh, a billionaire, uh, presumably richest man in the world, Elon Musk, has certainly become an influencer, and uh, he is, uh, I guess, creating quite a, a putting a scare into into mainstream media, probably because he's uh, uh, you know positioned to to buy Twitter, and he's saying you know he's not going to censor that he's going to let anyone speak, which means that the New York Times and and the, the Washington Post and these other corporate media will have. Uh, some serious competition if Musk decides to use his his billions to to kind of um, uh, push back on stories that they present. And the New York Times and Washington Post, being part of corporate media, usually toes the whatever political line of the of the party in power, and that that includes the the Democrats, but also Republicans when they're in power as well. And so um, I, I think I think their concern <clears throat> this uh, back and forth between them is more a concern about what Musk may, might do in the future, as opposed to, you know, his, his tweets uh, that can be sometimes incoherent now. Um, and, and so I, I think that's where, where, where this back and forth is coming from. How concerned are you that we now have billionaires, uh, Bezos, Bezos and Musk, getting in, who are both competing for government contracts who also now own media outlets are using their outlets to wage their battles publicly as they vie for government contracts and prominence. I, I think we should be uh, considerably concerned 
about this uh, ability of of uh, not just billionaires to to be billionaires. There's a, there's certainly a discussion we can have about the fact that uh, billionaires become billionaires because they don't play, pay their employees enough. They don't have benefits and so forth. They're able to put that into their bank accounts. Uh, but but now you know uh, you know Jeff Bezos owns the the Washington Post. I suppose uh, Musk wants to have uh, control of some social media in this case to push back on the Washington Post. Yeah, we should be seriously concerned about billionaires being able to not only create the story, but also to to create a a I guess a, a, a level of influence that allows them to uh, use taxpayers' dollars to get subsidies for their for, for their enterprise. Um, at least with Bezos, significant uh, national security contracts where they not only uh, can control the, 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 the popular media, but also the, uh, the deep state media, the clandestine media as well. You know, the, uh, when, when I look at this article and I look into what the complaints are and the New York Times complaints for um, against uh, Elon Musk, and this is not a defense of him or anything else. It could have been written by the U.S. State Department by Tony Blinken. Basically, when you read the things that they're complaining about, they're basically saying you won't go along with the U.S. foreign policy. They want you to do different things. They want you to take different positions. And when I look at it, it it seems to me their fear is that their foreign policy narratives may be hindered by – Elon Musk. The problem is it's not the U.S. Department, State Department that's writing this. It is what is alleged to be an actual media outlet, Dr. Tawheed. Yes, it's um, it's. Uh, but the New York Times, this is not uh, kind of a new position for the New York Times or the Washington Post. They are they are uh, traditionally conservative um, um, enterprises. At least the New York Times is. At one time, the Washington Post was the uh, the place where the um, where the Watergate breakout was being exposed, and so uh, they had some credibility. That's been that's been a while, and uh, so yes, the, the, these these um, um, Washington Post edit, uh, New York Times editorials could have could have been written, probably were seriously vetted by by the State Department. And and in this case, and again, not not a defense of Elon Musk. We have someone who is not towing the party line, and I guess is uh, rich enough to to create his own own enterprise to to do so. Uh, I was going to say perhaps rich enough to get away with it, but but uh, you know the national security apparatus has more money than Elon Musk, and so he may not he may not get away with this. He may be chastened in this process and brought back into line. If he buys Twitter, that that's uh, a, a certainly an opportunity for him to continue to tweet and to continue to to uh, let um, uh, what might be called anti-governmental uh, voices um, um, speak uh, without fear of of censorship. So yes, the, the, I think that the, the the State Department has to be concerned about Elon Musk, and the New York Times is is in that sense carrying that, that governmental water. Different uh, switching gears here, we have the so-called progressives, the progressive caucus, 30 members on Monday send a letter to Joe Biden expressing their support for funding Ukraine, but at the same time calling for negotiations with Russia. And then Joe Biden winds up having them cowering in the corner and retracting their statement. 
what does this say to you about the so-called progressives in Congress and where is the Congressional Black Caucus in supposing to supposed to they're supposed to be the conscience of the Congress? Yes, I mean there there used to be a, an anti-war left, uh, those who would be against war um, in at uh, by on any side. Uh, that uh, you would think that, that there would be a considerable number of progressives who would take that position as well. But the progressives in, in Congress have all voted for uh, increased funding for Ukraine. Uh, they made a progressive statement by saying that uh, the Biden administration should try to negotiate with Russia. Uh, it's a statement that President Obama made when he was in office. And the head of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, Mike, Mur Mike Murray, uh, under Obama and Bush before him, also made that that, that diplomacy uh, should be the way forward, not not um, uh, the, the military um, option. Uh, they were not chastened uh, when they made that statement. The progressives put out the statement, and on social media they get hammered. So I guess that's a connection to the to the prior story, and and they give their retraction, which which is. Very curious because they they could have probably expected this outcome, and um, they they said they indicated that they did not take into consideration election timing, uh, meaning that they didn't think uh, about whether it would affect or uh, one way or another uh, the Democrat turnout in in the election. I, I find that hard to believe. And, and the indications from the stories is that uh, uh, Jayapal, the head of the Progressive Caucus, doesn't let anything uh, come out of her office without her approval. So, so it, it seems as if this, this was approved. Perhaps even even the retraction was already um, um, planned. But but the story is out there. It does put pressure on the Biden administration, I think, to at least pretend until the, the election. Uh, that uh, negotiation with Russia is is ongoing. And in fact, uh, there was a story that came out right after this story that um, Lloyd Austin, the Secretary of Defense, was in fact talking to his counterpart uh, with the Russians. Uh, and so there is some negotiating going on. That, that information was let out after this progressive uh, statement was made. You know, Dr. Tawhid, I think it's a bit also I think it's a bit cynical, you know, to say, OK, there could be, you know, disastrous, calamitous, nuclear war, human extinction, all kinds of terrible things. Oh, wait a minute. Doggone it. I forgot. There's an election. I shouldn't have said that because it could disrupt the election. Now, I mean, if human beings, oh, we all get wiped out and there's nothing left on the planet but cockroaches. Fair enough. We can live with that. But we don't want to lose any extra votes in two weeks. Am I wrong in looking at that and saying that don't make it better to say that? That kind of makes it worse to me, Dr. Tawheed. Well, I, I think maybe maybe the calculus for the progressives was that they'd get the story out there. There would be those on the left who would agree with uh, the fact that uh, diplomacy needs to go forward who would at least think that there's someone who uh, has um, uh, Biden's uh, interest, if not ear, uh, who is saying this, and perhaps this can go forward afterwards. I, I, I'm, I'm not thought well about how this might affect the election, uh, except that I think there are a lot of, of progressives who, who want uh, diplomacy. And uh, if they're looking for, the, if they were looking for the progressive statement to have an influence on Joe Biden, they, are, they have been disappointed. 
here's one of the interesting dynamics to all of this, in my opinion. With our being now less than two weeks away from the election, and 57% of people of 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 uh, likely voters polled want the United States to engage in diplomacy, then the Progressive Caucus's letter was following the 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 the, the 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 expressed will of the American people. So they listened to the polls, they put the letter out there, but leadership decides it wants to go another way. Yeah, and uh, and leadership could have could have uh, and Biden administration could have could have uh, you know been more diplomatic about it. But but I suppose among in the Democratic Party there there is a a, a tendency not to let anything progressive come through. You have to knock down the progressives. Uh, you know, if they say, hey, you know, I'm all for sliced bread, the uh, the Democratic Party has to say that, no, 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 that's, that's not a good thing. Because progressive, uh, certainly with young people, um, the progressive um, um, uh, politics is is rising. Uh, yes, there is a, a, a growing dissatisfaction with uh, the lack of diplomacy or, or with the uh, the, the lack of a Biden administration initiative with the Ukraine war. Not that not that most Americans are are for Russia, but they are are you know this talk of nuclear war is not uh, is not settling for most people. In addition, uh, for the, the Biden administration, what the polls are indicating is that the, the, the voters are more concerned about the economy than they are about uh, the Ukraine war. And to the extent that the Biden administration is pretty much doing nothing. Uh, on the economy, except blaming uh, Vladimir Putin for it, uh, that doesn't bode well for the Democrats and and their inability to at least get a win on a progressive statement. Um, the Biden administration uh, is is also um, not good news. Dr. Tawheed, um, I'm going to make a prediction and tell me what you think. Number one, the Democrats are going to lose a lot of seats and it's not going to be a good day for them. Number two, they always blame the progressives. No matter how far to the right they go, they lose and they say if it hadn't been for the lefties, it'll be this letter. They will lose and then they'll say, well, if it wasn't for these bunch of stupid lefties writing some stupid peace letter about Ukraine, we'd have unanimously gotten every vote. We'd have swept the House. We'd have had super majorities. But they wrote that stupid uh, Ukraine letter. They just set themselves up to get pummeled again. Your thoughts? Yeah, I, I, I agree with that assessment. That is the the knee jerk reaction for the for the Democratic Party, the corporate Democrats. Um, and and I I wonder if in that sense I, I agree with you. And the progressives may have been better if they had not said anything as opposed to making the statement and the, and then uh, retracting it. Uh, the Democrats are certainly positioned to lose. It, it was it was so a couple of months ago. There appeared to be a glimmer of hope that the Democrats could at least uh, keep the Senate. Um, that uh, is uh, fading uh, with with uh, of all things the Senate race in in Pennsylvania, <laughs> uh, which um, you know uh, when 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 John Fetterman had his stroke, perhaps the the Democrats should have found an alternative candidate. Uh, but um, yeah, after this one debate, the the indication is that he, you know, okay, we, we shouldn't be so harsh on someone who's had a stroke. He's recovering, but he doesn't doesn't seem like someone who could uh, hit the ground running, if you will, in a dangerous situation, which now gives uh, you know Mehmet Oz the, the the edge, I think, in this. Unfortunately, 
uh, it is a, a, a bet was a bad choice by the Democrats to stick with that. And so, if they lose the Senate, that that of course means they lose um, Supreme Court nominations and and other um, and nominations for judges and so forth. But I think the Senate in this instance is is more important than the House, which the the Democrats will almost certainly lose. Yeah, from the looks of Fetterman after the other night, he will hit the ground. But it ain't going to be running. He's just going to lay there. Dr. Linwood Tawheed is, a, is an associate professor of economics at the University of Missouri at Kansas City. You're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm your host, Garland Nixon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm your host, Garland Nixon. Here is my co-host, Dr. Wilmer Leon. Thank you, Garland. Activists slam new sanctions placed on Nicaragua by the Biden administration. Also, Venezuela's retail sector grows dramatically, and Juan Guaido is rapidly falling from grace. Joining us now to discuss these stories, we have Ricardo Vaz. He's a political analyst and editor at VenezuelaAnalysis.com. Ricardo, welcome back to The Critical Hour. Hey, great to be back. Uh, again, VenezuelaAnalysis.com, a great site that I highly recommend. Venezuela, Guaido faces uncertain future with opposition parties set to withdraw support. The hardline politician has found himself increasingly isolated but retains control of oil subsidi- subsidiary Citgo and other assets. You know, Ricardo, kind of seems like that's the whole game the, uh, uh, all along here, and that is stealing the asset assets of Citgo and, uh, and, and filtering them through a one. Guaido's filthy little hands, Ricardo. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it, it, it's it's been it's been a long time. I mean, Guaido has been around since early 2019, and after a few months, it was already clear enough he wasn't going anywhere. He wasn't going to take power. So then you wonder what what has it all been about? And then you realize that he has control over these billion worth assets. And right now, I think that's the whole game, as you were saying. Ensuring that these assets end up in the right corporate hands, in, in this case of Citgo, that we describe in, in the article. Uh, there are many corporations coming after Citgo, among them ConocoPhillips. So even though nobody likes Guaido anymore, not even the hardline opposition, he's going to remain in place until this transfer of valuable Venezuelan assets is complete. And so all of this resistance to... Uh to Juan Guaido, as you all report in Venezuelan analysis, is resisted by his popular will faction. And Leopoldo Lopez, uh, who founded the faction, is abroad fleeing charges. How does Leopoldo Lopez factor into all of this? I mean, for, for it's not a mystery that the U.S. has always preferred to deal with these extreme right figures like Leopoldo Lopez. I mean, there are people who studied in the U.S. and they were, in a way, groomed to be the next generation of leaders in Venezuela. Only uh, someone named Hugo Chavez came along and ruined all their plans. And so they have this historical anger that somehow their destiny was taken away from them. And in the case of popular will, this is the the most right-wing party of the four main opposition parties, we could say, but also the smallest. So the other three also also carry some resentment that it was the, the most junior of partners 
who ended up enjoying all this protagonism of this uh, made up quote unquote interim government. So the other three are pushing to to end it, although they want to continue the party and they want to continue to enjoy the life out of these uh, Venezuelan assets abroad that the US has seized and now allows them to live uh, generous, um, wealthy lifestyles. But they want to get rid of the middleman who is Guaido and who has become a bit of an embarrassment. So what's happening with the parties now? It sounds like, you know, on all in, certainly the U.S. needs oil. And, and so they have to kind of go around Juan Guaido. And, and, and so the facade's starting to fall apart. Certainly the, um, the various, um, by now, the various opposition parties are waking up to the reality that Guaido's not going to help their, their cause in any way, shape, or form. What happens when and if Juan Guaido falls from grace with the U.S. empire and this puppet is no longer dancing um, on the end of U.S. strings. Hopefully when all this is, is over and the dust is settled, Guaido will be in jail and he will answer for all his crimes and all the suffering that he has brought on the Venezuelan population. That scenario is still uh, far from clear, even though right now everyone wants to get rid of Guaido. We just talked about the, the opposition. They want to focus on a presidential election that's not so far off and they need to reconfigure themselves as an opposition. So in that sense, Guaido is standing in the way. There's no way he's going to be the candidate. On the other hand, as you were saying, the US is focused on oil. It needs Venezuela to pump oil back into the market in a hope to drive down prices, but it's not really willing to compromise that much on its sanctions policy. So they are trying to, to play hardball, even though uh, they, have not, they don't have much to offer besides that. And they also haven't found a way to get rid of Guaido. So it's not clear how they're going to proceed. They, they just wedded themselves so much to this fantasy. And plus, the Biden administration has a very low tolerance for backlash. It doesn't want to be uh, outflanked in foreign policy by the likes of Marco Rubio. So we'll have to see how the midterm elections play out and, and what course of action the Biden administration wants to take. Venezuelan Analysis also has a piece, Canada Propped Up Venezuelan AstroTurf Group, linked to crumbling interim government. And it talks about, uh, you all talk about Venezuelan feminists and human rights activists say Canada's support for this group highlights an attempt by Ottawa to revamp its failed policy of supporting illegitimate political forces. What this really demonstrates to me is that it wasn't only the United States that's been involved in interfering in the politics of Venezuela, but Canada is another uh, country that has been involved in in these uh, uh, processes as well. Yeah, absolutely. Although uh, a minor figure, Canada has gone along with everything. And there were a couple of pieces we published at the beginning of the Guaido experiment that kind of speculated as to why Canada kept an interest and it has to do with, with mining. I and mean, some of the, the largest mining companies in the world are Canadian and it's no secret that Venezuela has a lot of mining resources. But these latest uh, revelations are not uh, sh uh, surprising in a way. And it just shows how imperialism always tries to co-opt these identity politics into something that's really empty. I mean, these are uh, I think we describe it in the article. These are women who are who are lawyers and diplomats. I mean, they're not really feminists in any meaningful way. I mean, they are kind of Hillary Clinton feminists. We could coin we could coin the term, but it also goes to show how all these figures who orbit this kind of uh, interim government ecosystem, they're all looking for uh, golden parachutes. I mean, they know this is going to end, 
So as long as it lasts, they are creating destruction and see how much of this Venezuelan money abroad that has been sold by the United States, they can appropriate and then have their, their cush retirements when, once this experiment is over. PopularResistance.org reports that the Biden administration said on Monday it would ban U.S. citizens from doing business with Nicaragua's gold industry. Activists are slamming the latest round of U.S. sanctions aimed at destabilizing Nicaragua. Your thoughts, Ricardo Vaz? Yeah, I think it was Ben Norton who said that the U.S. cannot go a full week without imposing sanctions on someone. This is a familiar tale. I mean, we saw it in, in, in Venezuela where all sectors one by one begin to be targeted by sanctions. It means that uh, it becomes much more complicated to do business. It, it's, it's, a, it's not so much a, a punishment as a way to drive away uh, foreign companies from doing business, in this case with, with Nicaragua. It's, uh, it's just another in, in this string of, of illegal measures that have been condemned, their impact has been condemned, but somehow the US cannot stop trying to overthrow these governments who for better or worse, and we can have our criticisms, they push for an alternative path, and that's what threatens U.S. hegemony in Latin America. What about the uh, this new executive order? It expands Trump-era sanctions. It accuses Ortega of hijacking democratic norms. I don't know what that means. Undermining the rule of law. I don't know that they've accused him of anything directly and using political violence against opponents. I know what that means, but as I understand it, <laughs> he wasn't using political violence against opponents. What he was doing was jailing people who were violating the law in Nicaragua. Yeah, I mean, we always need a, a kind of a dictionary. So hijacking democratic norms means uh, winning elections against uh, U.S. favors candidates. Undermining the rule of law means uh, imposing the rule of law or executing the rule of law. And using political violence means uh, not allowing uh, violent protesters who are funded by the U.S. to overthrow democratic, democratically elected governments. So again, uh, the U.S. should, should come up with, with new terms because by now we are all familiar with, with the dictionary and, and Ortega just won resoundingly uh, in the latest elections. So regardless of whatever criticisms and the U.S. not liking him, his democratic credentials are nowhere near uh, being questioned. One more article. Um, Brazil's election offers even more intense echo of U.S. culture war. We got about a minute, about, just about two minutes. Your thoughts on, on, on this? Yeah, I, I just had a quick look. I think it's a, a bit pretentious to try and see the U.S. projected everywhere because while, while there is this polarization, uh, it's a bit generous to compare the Democratic Party to Lula and the Workers' Party, who actually uh, mean something tangible for the, the poor and the working class in Brazil. They mean a significant, significant improvement to their living conditions. So while the, the attacks against them, this kind of communist, uh, ludicrous communism and uh, other kinds of accusations can be paralleled, uh, when it comes to substance, there's really nothing or not much that we can uh, compare the, the Brazilian Workers' Party and Lula to, to the Democratic Party and even someone like Biden. Ricardo Vaz is a political analyst and editor at VenezuelaAnalysis.com. VenezuelaAnalysis.com is a great website, keeps you up to date with what hap what's happening, particularly in, particularly in Venezuela, but also in other Latin American countries.
You're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm your host, Garland Nixon, with my co-host, Dr. Wilmer Leon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm your host, Garland Nixon, with my co-host, Dr. Wilmer Leon. Thank you, Garland. Peace in Ethiopia is difficult as long as the U.S. empire continues to support the TPLF. Joining us now to discuss this, we have Tunde Osazoa. Tunde is on the Africa team of the Black Alliance for Peace and coordinator of the Black Alliance for Peace's U.S. Out of Africa Network. Tunde, welcome back to The Critical Hour. Thanks for having me. The Black Alliance for Peace is an organization that covers the global South and worldwide. Go to blackallianceforpeace.com for more information. Popularresistance.org. The conflict between the Ethiopian government and the TPLF has been marked by a well-coordinated disinformation campaign. The effectiveness of that campaign should not be forgotten, even as the parties involved begin peace talks. Your thoughts, Tunde? Absolutely. Um, You know, a lot of uh, uh, the narrative around this war has been driven by um, this disinformation campaign that you referenced, even as uh, uh, the TPLF, which, as you mentioned earlier, is uh, uh, supported by the United States and is kind of uh, a U.S. proxy in this war, uh, uh, even as they are are losing ground and uh, things are getting more and more desperate, that... um, you know, propaganda, that uh, uh, disinformation that, that is being pushed has been elevated. Uh, uh, you know, even former U.S. diplomat Elizabeth Shackelford wrote in the Chicago Tribune, uh, uh, she said something like, sources from the area claim that Ethiopian and Eritrean forces have been instructed to kill three to grind each, including elderly and children, and that victims' limbs and skulls are on display. This is just, you know, uh, kind of like that ridiculous uh, uh, disinformation that they've been spilling since, you know, the beginning when they, there were talks of, you know, Tigray genocide. Uh, it, it's truly the TPLF uh, that is, is uh, causing most of the devastation. They started the war. They've been, uh, uh, you know, the aggressors uh, uh, more often than not, right? Like, we, we understand that the Ethiopian government, the Eritrean government, they're, they're more committed to peace than anything else. They've been showing up to the negotiation table, um, but it's plain that the TPLF is not and they can't be trusted, right? Like the TPLF has, uh, uh, you know, been uh, uh, since, uh, uh, you know, since their, the end of the 2000 war, of, 1998 to 2000 war of aggression, they've been, you know, uh, uh, continually provoking attacks, promoting conflict, tension and chaos supporting subversive groups, inciting ethnic violence, sponsoring assassinations, and more. And so, you know, I think that the the disinformation campaign has been very effective, uh, and that's the TPLF in coordination with, you know, a lot of Western states, Western forces, especially the U.S. So this piece uh, states, while there have been numerous other examples of disinformation throughout the duration of the devastating conflict, One of the most persistent and harmful surrounds the claims that the TPLF is genuinely committed to peace. How do you engage in peace negotiations with an entity that isn't genuinely genuinely committed to peace and is backed by a country that foments war 
looking at the track record in Libya, looking at the track record in Iraq, looking at the track record in Afghanistan, uh, who's at the table and, 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 and how can they trust anything that's being said? Yeah, it, it's very hard to trust, um, you know, anything that the TPLF or the United States says for, for the reasons that you mentioned, right? Like the TPLF has spent the two years since it, it sparked this, this more recent war, uh, since it, you know, attacked the northern command of the Ethiopian uh, uh, military in November 2020. And they've repeatedly rebuffed offers for peace and offers for breaking cease. And they've, they've, break, they've broken ceasefires in that time. They've dismissed, you know, the goodwill uh, uh, gestures towards peace from the Ethiopian government as uh, a sick joke and a PR gimmick. And it, it, they've also, the TPLF have also, has also used these periods to forcibly conscript soldiers, including thousands of children. They've established military bases and arms caches within civilian areas, and they've also launched attacks against neighboring regions, out, uh, uh, neighboring to, uh, to, to, to Tigray, as like Amhara and Afar, and even Eritrea. So, you know, we, we've seen like their attempts at war making, uh, this being the TPLF, uh, and, and how, you know, they, they are constantly, uh, um, you know, uh, just, uh, they're, they're just not truthful in, in their actions. And so I think that that speaks to, you know, the TPLF's intentions, right? Like, we know that this war is, is really, uh, uh, um, you know, part of, uh, uh, I guess, a broader all-out neo, excuse me, colonial policy, right? It's all about stopping, you know, Ethiopia from uh, um, getting beyond the realm of U.S. hegemony. And so, you know, that the U.S. and, and its proxy, the, the TPLF will stop at nothing to make sure that, that happens. The, the, uh, Ethiopia isn't able to, you know, uh, chart its own independent path for development and, and sovereignty. And, and the TPLF is, is just a conduit for that. Uh, let me ask you this. Um, you know, a lot of people have brought up the fact that the head of the World Health Organization is a former TPLF official and, um, con and you know, continues to push for the TPLF. You know, do you feel as though that's part of the game, that maybe that's why he's there in the first place, so that he can be used in that position as a tool to further push for uh, for regime change in, in Ethiopia? Um, well, I think uh, it's it's part of it. I can't say it's the whole the uh, only reason that he's there, but as you as you point to, he has used his position to speak out uh, 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 and spread false accusations against the Ethiopian government and present the TPLF as as victims, right? Uh, and so I think you know uh, it, it, it's it's uh, uh, it, it's convenient, right? That he that he as a former TPLF minister. Who, who maybe shouldn't have even been appointed to the, his current job as the head of the WHO uh, uh, is, is in that position and is able to, to help in this disinformation campaign. Um, and I, I think, you know, it, it just speaks to the wide-ranging, <coughs> I guess, uh, uh, power and, and, and uh, um, I guess, the, 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 the ability of, of the U.S. and, and these Western forces and uh, uh, in, in, uh, in, in the... I guess the very tools at their disposal to try and um, maintain, you know, U.S. hegemony, right? I, I think, you know, when we talk about, uh, uh, you know, Ethiopia and, and, and Eritrea, these are two states that have, you know, kind of uh, tried to, to uh, chart independent paths, right? Like Eritrea, for example, is not, you know, uh, uh, 
He doesn't have a, a, a relationship with the U.S. military. Uh, uh, and, and Ethiopia has, has uh, uh, I guess, normalized relationships with, with Eritrea since um, uh, Abiy Ahmed uh, uh, came to power in, in 2018. And they ended that de facto war with Air, between Eritrea and Ethiopia, right? And so I think that, they're, they're that along with other uh, 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 policies, uh, have, have really upset the United States, right? And so I think, you know, there's an, an attempt to, to uh, make sure that, you know, Ethiopia and Eritrea remain under uh, uh, under the thumb of um, uh, of the U.S., of the West. Uh, and and, and that, that's what I, I, this war is about. Uh, and, and even going into these negotiations that they're talking about, the U.S. wants to impose itself as the facilitator of these negotiations, though they are, you know, strongly behind the TPLF, uh, and, 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 you know, they wouldn't be a neutral uh, uh, force in the negotiations, right? Since we know that they supported the TPLF government from 1991 to 2018 and throughout this current war. So, so I think we have to see, uh, you know, this WHO uh, uh, head within that framework. This piece in a popular resistance states that Ethiopia is divided into ethnically based states within a federal system that was ruled by a coalition of four parties. How do those dynamics now factor into the negotiations and what will hopefully be uh, a peace accord? Uh, how how do how do those four uh, how do those four parties divide power? Yeah, I mean, I think there's um, that's an important consideration. Uh, the national question, you, some might say, in Ethiopia, right, in, in the sense that there are. Uh, these different ethnic groups that, you know, uh, don't necessarily have full sovereignty. Uh, and just like, you know, their ethnic groups within the United States or, or the UK or, or Nigeria or elsewhere who might not have full sovereignty. But, you know, I think uh, when we're talking about how uh, um, they factor into this conflict in, in Ethiopia, um, it's important to, to recognize that, uh, you know, the TPLF is really work to, to incite ethnic violence, to sow division, to, to, to spur tension, conflict, and chaos between uh, uh, these different uh, ethnicities, these groups. But I, for the most part, I think a lot of folks have under, understand the role of the TPLF as a, as, a, as a destabilizing force, as a proxy of the United States, uh, and, 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 you know, understand that they, they're really just trying to promote insecurity and prevent uh, uh, and and uh, uh, the uh, reforms that the Ethiopian government is trying to institute and and you know actually uh, um, uh, promote its its uh, overthrow, its toppling, right? And so I think you know there have been you know mass uh, 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 demonstrations against the TPLF, and, and they have brought different uh, uh, nationalities, different ethnic groups together. And so I think that speaks to uh, um, the 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 wishes. Uh, well, it, it speaks to the, the general calculus of, of who is making these decisions, who is, uh, um, you know, who, whose interests are at hand. And I think for the most part, people understand that the TPLF is the enemy, right? And, and that is a force that needs to be dealt with in order for, uh, you know, any of these groups to thrive within uh, a united Ethiopia. Um, and so I think, you know, w one thing we understand is that, you know, the United States is even uh, uh, understanding that, uh, as as the Ethiopian government, as the Eritrean government make gains within the war, they need to up the ante. And, and so they've, you know, uh, drawn up measures in, in Congress, like, you know, sanction bills, like 
is a House bill, I think H.R. 6600 and S. 3199, the Senate bill that, you know, seek to control every aspect of Ethiopian society, its, its economy, its politics, and even information shared. And, and these are policies that will affect every, you know, na uh, nationality, every ethnic group within Ethiopia. And so I think, you know, beyond just the TPLF, I think there's also a growing consciousness of, of the role of the United States in the West in, in this war and in terms of you know, continuing the suffering, continuing the, the devastation and, and the loss, the loss of life. A little bit of time left, but Counterpunch says Ethiopia, peace is impossible while the TPLF roam the land. And they describe uh, the TPF as a, uh, a criminal organization. We got about a minute. Your thoughts? Um, absolutely. A criminal um, organization. Right. I think uh, we should also understand that, you know, it, it's, they're not just criminal. It, I, I think throughout the, the, the disinformation campaign, throughout the, the, the propaganda about this war that's been spread by the West, uh, a lot of, you know, even those sanctions bills that I mentioned and, and a lot of the media are treating the TPLF and the Ethiopian government as equals, right? Whereas, you know, Ethiopia is a sovereign, sovereign country, right? And its army is fighting uh, uh, an uprising within its own borders, right? Which is uh, inspired probably from outside the country. We know that, you know, the TPLF arrived to some of the recent, deli uh, recent I guess, negotiations on U.S. military aircraft accompanied by the U.S. Special Envoy to the Horn of Africa, Mike Hammer, right? So that speaks to the connection or, or, or uh, the relationship between the TPLF and the U.S. and the West, right? So I think, you know, we have to understand that, you know, we, we can't see the TPLF is any sovereign nation. They, they shouldn't be seen as equal to the Ethiopian or Eritrean governments. And yes, I agree that they're a criminal organization. They, they have to be dealt with. They have to be taken care of in order for us to see peace uh, in Ethiopia and Eritrea. Tunde Osazoa is on the Africa team of the Black Alliance for Peace and coordinator of the Black Alliance for Peace's U.S. Out of Africa Network. Go to blackalliancefor.peace.com for more. You've been listening to The Critical Hour here on Radio Sputnik. Thank you for allowing our voices into your space. On behalf of myself and my co-host, Dr. Wilmer Leon, we hope you were informed and enlightened. We look forward to talking with you all tomorrow right here on Radio Sputnik. Be safe. Peace and blessings. We are out. 